This is Dead Stick Radio, episode 10, recorded December 22nd, 2019. Buying a Buccaneer, part 2. This episode is brought to you by airracegear.com, the place to buy air race merchandise. I'm Scott Holmes. And I'm Brian Murray. And today we're going to talk about uh, your adventures bringing your lake home from Ontario. Exactly. This is our, actually our second attempt at recording this uh, this episode. The last one we had a whole bunch of audio problems that couldn't be corrected. So we're giving it a second shot. So if we uh, miss something or whatnot, then uh, that'll be what happened. <laughs> Man, we're so amateur. <laughs> we are. We are. That's Anyways, right. We're, get, we're getting better. Um, so for some context, some history, there's there's a previous episode uh, online uh, available about your adventures buying and choosing and selecting and finding and pre-buying and then finally doing the transaction for your uh, Lake Buccaneer. Yeah. I, that happened over the summer, right? Like two, th- two three months worth? Yeah, exactly. So I, I eventually purchased the thing, and I believe it closed the end of July. And uh, and from there, and the end of that episode, I was flying off to there to actually pick up the airplane. Right, right. So, so this is about, uh, so we get back from Oshkosh, and straight from Oshkosh, you basically fly back to Ontario. Yeah. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, exactly. So I'd been I'd been waiting from uh, from Oshkosh to get uh, a JPI a- engine instrumentation uh, device, a, a JPI EDM. Your engine monitor. Exactly, the engine monitor. And it was I was shipping it off to Edmonton, and uh, so I flew back to Edmonton, waited for it to arrive. And as soon as it arrived, like two days later, I was on a plane off to Ontario to go get this thing installed and start uh, and start doing training out there. So I had uh, at that point I had had virtually no it was like maybe 25 hours of actual uh, PIC time uh and was uh, basically flying on out there just commercially and we started PIC is pilot in command exactly exactly so we were flying out so I flew out there and we started installing it, it took us about a week to get it all installed um but uh I got to learn a lot about the airplane I got to see everything about it the whole plane we took entirely apart we rebuilt uh, half the panel the whole engine was effectively stripped down uh the from from um so the CHTs and EGTs were all replaced and fuel flows and and even fuel sensors and stuff. They were all, everything was all stripped down and replaced uh, with this new engine monitor, which is a significant upgrade compared to the, the old steam gauges that were in there. Right. So so you participated in your kind of pre-buy, uh, not only the inspection, but also the work. Would you recommend that again? I definitely recommend it. It makes a lot of sense to... Uh, actually get to, to know everything about the inside of the airplane now at that yeah, point understand already, how it works take all the panels off exactly exactly and at that point i had already bought it we had already the pre-buy had already gone through and it would all it all looked good they had already received the money in the, in the whole nine yards so this was effectively installing that and that let me really understand every little piece of the airplane uh to a degree that you know many many pilots who are just buying an airplane and hoping somebody else deals with everything doesn't get to doesn't get to experience yeah that makes sense so you basically take all the panels off look at it Add the wires in where you want to add them, and what that does is it gives you a level of knowledge, uh, systems-wise, on the airplane that most pilots, especially like say rental flight school students, would never get. So they they have to memorize checklists because they don't understand how the systems work. Yeah, exactly. But if you understand the systems, then the memorization makes sense. Yep. So it's not so much memorizing as it is just understanding why you need to do things in what order. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of like a flying lawnmower. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, it. 
you really do get to to learn and understand everything about that airplane. Uh, I I found out I didn't when I bought it I didn't know it actually had a Tannis heater until I. Uh, What's a Tannis heater? So Tannis heater is uh, in your car. You have a, a a block heater for for your car when you plug it in. At least in Canada we do. We're all mandated to have that. You plug it in and it heats up your oil and kind of the block a bit. Whereas a Tannis heater actually plugs into all the cylinder heads as well as the block. And uh, then you get, uh, it basically heats up the whole engine um, and you leave it plugged in for about 12 or 12 or so hours in the cold. And then you can cold start that engine, even though it's, you know, minus 10, minus 20 degrees outside where you really wouldn't want to do that if it's below, below zero, below freezing Celsius. Right. So with cars, uh, the cars are engineered and designed where they can be started at say minus 30. And as long as it runs, no problem or as starts, I should say. Airplanes, on the other hand, are 1940s technology with old school hydrodynamic bearings, which is basically just two pieces of metal that if you pump oil in between, it floats on a cushion of oil um, to, to make your crankshaft turn and everything. Exactly. So in the cold, the different metals, so one metal might be aluminum, the other one will be, say, steel, uh, expand and contract differently. And the tight tolerances on the bearings, I'm talking 20 thousandths of an inch, uh, could uh, uh, grow or shrink to zero or less. So you have an interference fit. So when you start your, your very cold engine, then you could have metal on metal contact because it's too cold. Exactly. And that, that creates a lot of metal and destroys your bearings and your cylinders really quickly. Okay. So what you're saying your Tannis heater does is it doesn't just provide heat to the oil pan. It also heats all the bearings and the cylinders and, and provides a more uniform temperature distribution over the engine when it's cold out. Exactly, exactly. And it, it's especially important on the, the cylinders because the, the piston, the actual piston is made out of steel, whereas the uh, cylinders are actually made out of aluminum. So they expand and contract at different rates. And when uh, vice versa, piston's aluminum, barrel steel. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. And uh, so they expand and contract at different rates. So effectively that, that piston will sit there scoring up the, the yep. cylinder head. Your bearings and, do too. And your bearings do exactly. And there's a, there's a lot of things that, uh, that just causes some, some serious issues too. So if it's below anywhere, anywhere around zero or anywhere around the freezing point, you want to make sure that that Tannis heater is up and running. Obviously where I am parked right now, it's, it's in a hangar, so it's not a, not an issue, but if you're parking it outside, it's a, it's a big deal. And especially you want to make sure you got a cowling blanket on, which, uh, which my plane did come with. It came with a really, really good one. So when I was, uh, flying back, uh, partway out, partway back, uh, it was reasonably cold one day as about, I think minus five, uh, before the sun came up. And I left the Tannis heater on overnight. And when I came out, that that uh, engine was actually a little, probably a little warm to touch too. So uh, it was uh, very effective. Very, very effective. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. So anyway, so your plane has a Tannis heater. What else did you find when you were doing the work? I found spare keys as well. Uh, there where? Was, there's some spare keys. That they're like actually, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're hidden in the plane attached to the Tannis heater. So I was uh, like, all right, sure, I guess. Um, makes sense because you know if you're in a float plane you drop your keys they're generally in the water and yeah gone gone exactly i got a little float on mine but um you know you lose your keys you forget your keys somewhere suddenly what do you do well now i've got spare keys i just have to know which panel to take open with a screwdriver and are they still there it. yeah they're still there still there <laughs> so if your airplane's locked at a flying and it disappears you know it was somebody that listened yep yeah, exactly <laughs> so now so you I've, found spare keys what else did you find um 
it was all fairly standard from there. I, I got to uh, really understand stuff like how, how the turbocharger works. My plane my plane is turbocharged. Uh, did a bunch of other uh, work onto it. Uh, brakes, we, wheels. Yeah, brakes were replaced. Uh, the brakes were originally Goodyear brakes. They were very, very ineffective. Um, so if you tried to do a run-up, it would just be skittering across the tarmac. Whereas now with the... Um, uh, I can't remember the... Cleveland's? Yeah, the Cleveland brakes. They are... Uh, quite a bit more effective um what else uh, uh replace the fuel injectors with uh with gam ejectors actually turbo gam ejectors so they are very very effective that uh the gammy spread on on the engine is very 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 narrow i can get the thing all the way back to like low sevens uh, seven gallons per hour and it runs smooth 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 um obviously there's, it's not most efficient to be running that that low but it, it'll easily do it um, a lot of planes won't, especially uh, carbureted or, or throttle body injected won't, won't, won't get that low, whereas mine, because it's fuel injected with those injectors, will. So that's... Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me. So you did all that work, cowled it back up, and then what? So then from there, um, my insurance stipulates that I must have uh, 25 hours training dual with someone... Um, in that airplane? In in the type, yep, in the type. Uh and another 10 hours solo solo flying before I'm allowed to take passengers. And uh, and then that, that covers me uh, for, for, hull, for hull as well. So um, not just not in motion, but also uh, in flying, which for uh, amphibious airplanes and float planes, you know, usually insurance is very, very expensive. But doing this training, it's actually not that much more expensive than, uh, than other airplanes. So I did the 25 hours training. Uh, there was a guy out in Ontario that I did it all with. Well, why don't, why don't we hold for there for a second and highlight that point? Sure. For those interested in buying a amphibious airplane, you know, one with floats and wheels, so you can land on either runways or water, insurance required that you have 25 dual hours. Yep. And is 25 hours not the minimum requirement for your private pilot license? Um, something like that. It's pretty close it's, to that. It's like 25 for solo and then another, it's like 40 or something for the, for the license. Well, for it's private. 45 total. Yeah. 45 total. Yeah. So I think it's like 30 or 25 or something total for the private. So basically you needed to redo your private pilot license over again in dual time. Basically. Yes. And one of the, one of the stipulations on this particular training program is I needed to do 200 water landings and another 50, uh, land landings. There's a warning for everybody out there that wants to buy an amphibious. Yeah, especially a flying boat, lake amphib. It's uh, it's 250 takeoffs and landings in 25 hours, and that was pretty brutal. Uh, on the and I did it all within. It was less than a week. It took me maybe I think four days worth of flying to do it all in. So I I remember when you were doing this. So how what was your record for most takeoffs and landings in a day? So I set the record for the whole training program. Uh, <laughs> the the most number of landings uh, I didn't I didn't set it for water landings. I set it for total landings, which includes uh, on on tarmac as well. Ninety four takeoffs and landings in a single day. <laughs> now it's a little different. Uh, obviously, you're picturing uh, takeoffs and landings, and you go into a circuit and you do that. Well, fortunately, with float planes, you're landing on a lake where you can pretty much land anywhere you want. So what we would do is we'd go and we'd touch down. We wouldn't actually come to a stop. We'd just kind of skim along, and then we'd pop back off again. So that, you know, each each takeoff and landing only takes you know 
20 seconds and then you climb back up maybe a lot of times you'd climb up maybe 100 200 feet and then set back up for another landing and, and land pretty much straight ahead so, so you with, can do a lot yeah within a minute you can do you know two or three landings no problem um unlike uh, you know if you're having to do circuits where you know uh, one circuit is every couple of minutes so yeah i think i i think i do like five minutes a circuit in a slow airplane if you bring that down to 500 feet it cuts it in half yeah exactly so it, it's not as bad as it sounds and uh, we got to do a whole lot of good stuff like that we did it in the fall though so it was pretty cold out uh you don't really want to go in the drink um when it's that cold and um uh, because it was in the fall, you ended up with kind of crappy weather a lot of the time. Uh, so we were doing some takeoffs and landings in, in Perry Sound, for example. And uh, if you've ever been at the Perry Sound Airport out in Ontario, you'll know what kind of a, a nightmare that, that airport can be, especially because the wind will sometimes come at about 90 degrees to the airport. And then there's a kind of a clearing right off the beginning of the <laughs> um, the runway where it's it's this kind of narrow this rocky narrow where the where cars drive and if you get like a 15 20 knot gusting crosswind uh suddenly you're coming down you're on a nice stabilized approach and then your all of a sudden dies. Your cro- well your crosswind either drastically increases you know Bernoulli effect as it, as oh, the yeah. wind pushes through there <laughs> and and you're just kind of all over the place um so i had some probably the worst landings i've ever had in my life uh down there at Perry Sound uh, uh, and, uh, and, but I, I got through the whole thing and, um, and off and, and off I went. So, yeah. So about a week later, about a week later, um, you're good. You're signed off for solo, signed off, uh, signed off and good for solo. Took it out for, um, uh, once we were done the actual training, we found actually a bunch of other problems with the airplane, um, primarily caused by me, uh, banging the plane around doing like training. Uh, well for, for one, for example, you're doing a lot of circuits. So you have the, the boost pump on all the time. Well, the boost pump failed and started pissing gas out the side. So it was literally, it was just, just dumping gas out the blowhole uh, continually um, to a point actually that we were doing circuits and, and we noticed suddenly the fuel fuel gauge was reading incredibly low, even though the, the fuel totalizer said we weren't, hadn't burned a lot. And <laughs> I got your boost pump had failed. Exactly. So I got, I got super worried about that and like, oh, okay, crap. Well, we can't really... Um, I don't really want to keep flying this thing because you know we might we might only be like less than ten gallons like one of the like the, the fuel. Yeah, what if says. it's true? <laughs> what if it's true? Exactly. Even though it says I've only burned fifteen gallons, you know, it says a the the actual fuel gauge says I'm I'm down to less than ten gallons. I'm like, all right, head back to the fuel. Turns out it was just the uh, the fuel sender was actually also um, basically fried. It so was, you fixed that too. Exactly, which meant we had we had actually sealed up the fuel tank uh, um, uh, during the whole installation thing well we had to unseal it put the new total or put the new fuel sender in and then reseal it again which is a not a not a short process well you have to mix up sealant and stuff too don't you exactly exactly <laughs> so so poor uh poor dennis out there having to deal with that he was um he was the young guy that was was doing a lot of the maintenance on it um and uh, uh a lot of the installation work so yeah so i think that's pretty standard because i know with all of my airplanes if I do a whole bunch of work on them, then take them out and go fly them really hard for like two weeks, I'll find stuff. Exactly. Like things that needs adjusting, that kind of thing. Exactly. So you, you, you tuned everything up, fixed the things that were broken, burned out, whatever. Yep. Then what? So then from there, it was pretty much just wait for a weather window. And it was, the weather pretty much just cleared up almost immediately. Uh, so it was, I think the very next day, I uh, took, it up for a, took it up for a test flight, just did a maybe about an hour, two hours 
uh, flipped to Perry Sound, just kind of uh, petered around, did a couple water landings, uh, solo water landings. I talked to some other lake owners, and um, one of them had said that even after he did his training, he he didn't he didn't actually do any water landings for another year because he was just kind of afraid of it. And I just said, you know, I need to really? jump. Exactly. I'm just like, I need to jump right in and do an uh, immediately. The first thing I need to do is do some water landings because I've just did 200 of these things with someone else in the plane. <laughs> I just need to, to grab, grab a bull by the horns and just do it. And, of course, I did it. And then um, I feel reasonably comfortable on it. And obviously, they're much more difficult to fly than, um, than a typical plane on floats. So especially landing-wise. Um, one of the interesting quirks about them, uh, so when you're landing a, say, a 172 or a 180 or something on floats, when you land it, when you touch down on water, you, you know, you flare like you normally would and, and you touch down. It's effectively, you, you treat it a lot like a soft field. So as soon as you touch down, you, you chop the throttle if you have any in, and then you, you hold the stick back and just kind of let it settle into the water. Well, on a lake, you can't do that. So um, you, you do chop the throttle, but if you pull back, it'll immediately pop back out of the water. Um, it's just got way, way more lift and that long... Well, and that wing is way lower, right? The wing's so got way, a lot more ground effect. A lot more ground effect. And the hull is, because the hull's so long and so wide, it's got a lot of hydrodynamics uh, uh, planing on there. So it'll pop right out of the water immediately. And then you're suddenly 10, 20 feet in the air. If yeah, so so the plane it. wants to fly. Exactly. It continues to want to fly. So instead of pulling back, which is your natural incl- inclination after doing a float rating, you actually want to push forward. All the way? All the way forward. And oh, that'd be weird. It's it's very, very weird. And it skims across the water, and then it just kind of settles in, and, and you're good to go. So uh, it... Uh, it can be a very dangerous airplane to fly if you don't have that that feel for it. So well, that explains the 25-hour dual requirement for insurance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. A lot of guys will go out there and just hop in one of these, go, I know what I'm doing, and suddenly they'll go and kill themselves, not realizing when they pull back, suddenly they're they're 20 feet in the air and they smack <laughs> that thing down and, and roll the plane up in the water, and you know, then they're they're drowning out there in a in a ball of uh, debris. So, um. So that's one of the big quirks about these these airplanes. Uh, aside from that, though, they are incredibly uh, agile on the water. Um, in a regular float plane, when you're up on a step tax, you can you can do some turns, but it's it's not not very aggressive turns. On these, you can get very very aggressive on them. They they move like a boat, almost like a almost like a jet ski. Right. So you can you know when you're up on that step, you can turn those things real quick. And uh, I was flying with one guy. We did a turn within about within about the the span of about three wingspans. We were able to do a complete 180 turn uh, up at uh, up on up on the steps. So quite a bit different than than regular planes are. So that allows you to uh, take off in a very very small lake. So in a regular float plane, you pretty much look straight ahead, and you got you know 1,500 2,000 feet of water in front of you. You can take off. If you have less than that, then you got to find somewhere else to take off. One of these things, you know, you need a thousand feet of of, run, of, of water to take off at, uh, maybe fifteen hundred feet over over obstacles, but you don't necessarily need that in front of you because you can do a turn. You can basically wait. wait so you get on step, turn towards the shoreline, motor towards the shoreline on step, crank it around, and then you have thirty an extra thirty knots running head start. Well, even even beyond that, you can take off while it while the wings aren't level. So you can basically be doing a giant circle. Through a through the bowl of a lake and <laughs> and it it'll just it'll take off doing that circle as long as you keep that uh, that sponson out of the water you can turn that thing fairly sharp and you just throw in some throttle 
and and off you go. So you can be you can take off in a lake that's you know 500 feet wide. So the circular runway works. The circular runway does work exactly. Only in your plane though. <laughs> exactly. And one of the really nice things too is once you get off the water, uh, you, you you set for climb up for 65 knots. I can get it all the way in a 30 degree uh, bank angle, 65 knots, and be still cr- climbing four or five hundred feet per minute, no problem. Which is very very easy to get out in a, in a bowl of a of a lake. Right. So if you're in like a deep canyon or something, small lake. Just do the old spiral takeoff. Exactly. Only airplane out there that can do that. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it's 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 very very rare that airplanes can do that kind of thing. And like a 172 or 180, you really can't do that. Yeah. When I was doing my float rating, we were taking off in a bowl, and of course, learning the technique to do that, you take off straight ahead, and then uh, you get 50, 100 feet off the water. You put that nose nice and level, and then you crank it around 30, 40 degrees, and then you can then you can kind of turn around like that. My plane, I keep climbing at that. And, uh, and it just, it just goes, it just goes like crazy. So, so, okay. So now you've had your fun, you've done your solo landings, just to, you know, your confidence, takeoffs and landings. Now it's time to fly at home. Exactly. So that, uh, that afternoon, um, I was, I, the same afternoon I did my solos there. Uh, they weren't supervised solos. It's not like uh, a regular training program. So uh, that was all kind of flying myself. Um, I said, all right, you know, time to time to head out. I've uh, sent the rental car back. I've checked out of the hotel and I just booked it. So that day I turned west and turned west started. and just stepped going, kept going. Actually, more so turned north because I had to get around the Great Lakes. Right. I'm not going to fly directly over the lakes. Why not? Well, they have big swells on them. So if there's any kind of white caps or, or whatnot on a lake, you don't really want to land on it. You'll, you'll blow, blow the hull apart. Yeah. Um, and if I had any kind of engine problems, I didn't want to have to be dealing with that. So instead I followed the shore all the way up, which gave me all kinds of little coves and, right. and rivers sense. and stuff. So a whole bunch of safety options. Uh, if you're flying in a, like a 172 or something, your only option is find an airport or ditch in the water and, and, you know, cross your fingers. Well, in that area is just all forest. It's all for, well, it's, there's a lot of forest and a lot of, and a lot of little lakes, a lot of little lakes, inlets, uh, stuff like that. So for me, it gave me tons of landing options. If I had an engine problem or whatnot, I wasn't going to be worried about it. Right. Uh, initially, I was talking to my instructor. I'm like, well, maybe you should come back, uh, fly back with me and, and whatnot. But uh, looking at his prices and whatnot and also realizing, you know, I've done enough hours on this thing. I feel I feel pretty comfortable on this. And I've got a lot of options. i got way more options than most planes do. If I'm over the prairies, I land on a, on a road. If, I, if I'm over the... The shield, there's lakes everywhere. I just make sure I keep an eye out on the lakes and stay at a high enough altitude that I can get to them. And well, now I'm I'm fairly safe. And uh, and I always carry a GPS tracker with me. I've got a, a Garmin InReach, and that'll tell people exactly where I am. Actually, uh, Scott, you I sent you. I'd oh yeah, lit. that thing's sweet, by the way. Yeah. Because I get pings when you take off and land, but I can also see the breadcrumb trail every like ten minutes. Yep. So it's a it's a pretty sweet system. The, the map is nice and. I think it's easy to use. Like very reliable. Your uh, your map is probably better than the map on the spots because yes. I've got a spot. Yeah, and I, I have a spot Gen One, and I was looking because I'm I'm potentially planning on flying around the world in this plane. I wanted to have something that's going to work everywhere around the world. And I actually did a, a YouTube video uh, about this about the differences between the inReach versus the spot, and the uh, the inReach is drastically more reliable because they use a much better satellite network. They get 100% coverage of the globe, whereas the, the spot has a limited coverage around the world. Um, there's just kind of the way they, they handle it. So if you, so then why don't we do this then? Why don't we post that link on the Dead Sick Radio Facebook page around the time this episode comes out? So if anybody wants to find that YouTube 
uh, video, just go to the Facebook page and you'll find it there. Exactly, exactly. That'll be the best best place for it. So I start flying back. I get all the way to Sault Ste. Marie uh, the first night. Um, I made a phone, few phone calls and, and found myself an FBO to park in overnight because um, I didn't really know what the weather was going to be like. I didn't know if it was going to be below zero, and I didn't want to hassle with any of that stuff. So I, uh, I book it up to Sault Ste. Marie, and I find this this one hangar. I was assuming it was going to be a small hangar with a couple you know small airplanes in it. turns out... Uh, there was a, an FBO doing maintenance on um, Q400s for Air Alaska. <laughs> so this massive hangar. And over I, I, there? O- over in Sault Ste. Marie. And I, I, I pull up, and they're, they're there. They're guiding me in with the, with, the, uh, with the batons, and they say, come on in. And, <laughs> and they tow the plane in. They're like, man, we've never seen a plane like this before. <laughs> I'm like, oh, boy. Like, I, I, this is a little overkill. Yeah, what's the rate going to be? Exactly. The rate actually wasn't too terribly bad for one night. It wasn't, wasn't so bad. But they gave me a ride into town. They, they told me about uh, there's a bush plane museum, an, an amazing bush plane museum in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, walked over to there because um, uh, it was nice and warm out. I just walked over there. Amazing little... Um, amazing little uh museum over there so if you're if you're ever driving across canada and you're a pilot or flying across canada that's a, a definite definite must um or even because uh, it's it's right on the border between canada and the u.s so head over the border and see that um that night so i stayed there the next night i flew into thunder bay uh, but the weather was not looking all that great between thunder bay and and uh, winnipeg so that night uh i had to had to stop off in thunder bay i I was like, well, you know, last night I really didn't need to be in a hangar, so I just, uh, I just, I left it parked outside on the tarmac, had it all tied down, and I went out. Actually, went out and bought a, a power cable for the Tannis heater, and that night I, I, I plugged in the Tannis heater. And the next day I checked the weather again, and still icing and low clouds over over Winnipeg. And <laughs> then the next night, and then the next night, and then the next night, and Scott's just getting a flurry of text messages of me just describing the. Well, I, I think I texted you every single day. So you're there for what, a week? About a week, yeah. I texted you every day, sometimes twice a day, saying, how's Thunder Bay? How's Thunder Bay? How's Thunder Bay? <laughs> yeah, and I don't think there was very many positive texts closer to the end of the week. At the beginning of the week, I was like, yeah, great. I like Thunder Bay. It's kind of cool. By the end of the week, I was like, I have to get out of here. I, I have to get out of here. This is, I was getting stir crazy, staying in a hotel. Um, it was an okay hotel. It wasn't a bad hotel. There was a bar down there and, and got to meet some interesting people there. But yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't, by the end of it, I was, I was ready to go. And finally the weather starts to turn. I call up weather brief and they're like, well, today's probably not the best play, best day to go, but tomorrow's later tomorrow. Exactly. Tomorrow's looking, looking better. I'm like, cool, cool. So next day I get up earlier than I've been up probably in three, four days in probably years. I'm up at like 7 a.m., 6.30 a.m. I'm checking the weather, checking weather brief, packing my bags, and everything's looking great. It's below zero. I, I head on over, and there's frost all over the plane. So I, I knew there was going to be frost on the plane because it was just below zero, and the dew point was pretty low there in the, that night, uh, or pretty high. And uh, get out, I, I clean off all, the, all the, the frost off the plane. I check the tannis. It's nice and warm. Everything is looking good on the plane. I pay my bill at Thunder Bay. I was assuming it was going to be a lot higher. Um, I think they messed up on their bill, uh, <laughs> but uh, ended up being a lot cheaper than I was expecting it to be. Uh, filled up with gas and off I headed. And uh, of course, uh, in the first 20, 30 minutes, the cloud bases were were low um, just outside of Thunder Bay, uh, just flying north there. The, the cloud bases 
pretty much touched the ground. Um, there was literally cell phone towers. I could see the, s- the top of the cell phone tower disappearing into the cloud. <laughs> so I'm kind of skirting around these things uh, around to the north, and uh, I, f- I found a fairly wide hole. It looked fairly clear to the north. So I turned around north of this this big cloud cluster, and as soon as I got past that, that, that cloud that was touching the ground, as soon as I got past that, perfectly clear. There was no not a cloud in the sky below you know, seven, 8,000 feet, and there was, like, scattered at best. And you flew from there to, what, Steinbeck? Uh, yeah, all the way to Steinbeck. Was it clear there. in Steinbeck? Absolutely, completely clear. <laughs> I don't think there was any clouds in the sky uh, in, in once I got to Winnipeg, around to Winnipeg. So flew into there, got myself some fuel that night, or, or that day, and uh, just, just self-serve fuel, which was super handy, texting back and forth with the guys, and they were really, really helpful. Uh, they were the Harv's Air guys. But their airport at the time was closed for repaving. Yeah, South was closed for repave. So you went to North. Went to North, and they were they were all there. And of course, everyone's coming over. Like, wow, I've never seen a plane like this before. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm like, really? I was expecting these planes to be everywhere because the the airport we're at out out here in Villeneuve, there's what four of them on the airfield. I know I'm, it's common out here. Very common out here, but apparently across the country, they're very uncommon. Uh, when I was getting gas in. Where was I getting gas? Um, I think Regina, because uh, Regina was my next stop. That night, I was trying to get all the way to to Saskatoon, but it was just a little too far, and I didn't have a night rating. So I could get into Regina, no problem, with enough enough clearance. Exactly. So I stopped there. I was getting fuel there. Those guys are saying, oh, well, we haven't seen one of these planes in like three years, but I love seeing these planes come through. I'm like, cool. So... Um, Got got my fuel um, and uh, stayed the night in Regina the next night, and from there it was pretty much a straight shot back to Edmonton. I, I stopped a uh, quick uh, splash and dash at uh, in Lloydminster, and then back here back here to Edmonton. Yeah. And uh, I, I, what was it like pulling in the first time? Well, Eldon was waiting. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, I texted Eldon. Eldon was tracking me as well. Uh, Scott, you were tracking me as well. But I think that that day you had some appointment or something to yeah, do. Yeah, it was like the Santa Claus tracker. Yeah. Everybody was watching. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone was watching. So I, I I pull up, I land, and I pull around to the hangar, and Eldon's just like, get over over this one over here. And the, the door was already open. There was already space cleared in front of the <laughs> hangar. Eldon was just completely taking care of me. That is the hospitality we get out of Eldon's hangars, everybody. Yep. Uh, so it was it was pretty good and uh, pull in and uh, from there it was uh, pretty well good to go. Um, from from there um, after I after I got back a couple days later I tried to get out to Kelowna but the weather kind of closed in on me uh, so I just I turned back um, and then, then you it was, parked it ever since. <laughs> yeah, it needed an oil <laughs> Three change. Three months later. Well, it needed an oil change so I, I got an oil change immediately after that but then uh, my interim CFR expired. It's the end of October. My interim CFR expired and I had sent in my CFR paperwork in September, in the middle of September, um, because, you know, I, I was waiting for some paperwork from, from them. So I didn't actually see the, uh, certificate uh, of airworthiness, um, when I actually bought the airplane. So I'm like, give me that. And then we'll consider the whole transaction closed. And then uh, I'll send in the CFR paperwork. So until that happens, I'm not, you know, this is all, everything else is undoable. Uh, we can, and, uh, and we don't have to worry, you know, if, if you can't get me the C of A, uh, then this isn't a valid airplane. Um, so they, they, they did get me that paperwork in the middle of September, uh, when I started the training, that's actually when I got that, all that paperwork, sent it all in. And so right at the end of October, right when the interim CFR was about to expire, um, I like, why haven't I gotten this paperwork back yet? 
So I call up transport and say, you know, what's, what's the status of it? Is it in queue? Is it waiting for something? Like what's, what's going on? Have I missed something? It had been a month and a half. Like what's, what's going on? And they say, we haven't received it yet. Like, wait, what? <laughs> and it dawned on me, um, I'd received a, a registered letter um, from uh, in, in the mail uh, through Canada Post that had been sent back. So I'm like, well, I didn't know what that was, but I'm like, wait, maybe that's the same thing because it was it sent. Was. <laughs> it was sent about the same time that my other one, um, other one happened. So I, I, I realized, uh, so I realized this, this letter might have been the uh, bounce back of my of my my paperwork. So I tried to track all the stuff down, and I'd I'd lost the actual tracking information when sending in my my C of R, um, lost it somewhere in the in the in the flight back. And I, uh, so make, make some phone calls and try to figure out where it is. And the next day I get a call from transport saying, oh yeah, we just got a letter in the mail from you. Um, it was a bounce back and it's your, your paperwork and there's a problem with it, which is probably why they sent it back. I never got a phone call the first time. Uh, so I had no idea what was wrong with it. Turns out, um, on their web, well, on their website, it says, you must send in payment and it must be made payable to, you know, transport Canada. Like, okay, well, I'm not 60. I don't carry checks with me. I don't do, I don't deal with checks. I don't even have checks. Yeah. So I was just, all right, well, send them, send them cash, right? No problem. Cash is payable to whoever is bearing it. It turns out they don't accept cash. It's not written anywhere on their website. They don't accept cash. (laughs) And it turns out they do accept credit card online through a web portal that they had absolutely no link to. So I was like, that's typical though. Exactly. It's just like, okay guys, well, fine. So I immediately, while she's on the phone, I put in the information, send off the thing. She's like, okay, cool. Uh, we're going to send this, uh, this cash back to you. Uh, it'll be sent back registered mail. So I, I check, I'm tracking it. I'm assuming my, my paperwork's going to be all in there too. And it turns out it's not. So I've been calling back and forth to transport Canada and all they're doing right now is telling me, well, our service of our, our standard of service is uh, 60 business days, 60 business days. And, you know, in a regular business, you assume 60 business days means that's the most they can take before you start taking action at them or, or whatnot. With Transport Canada, 60 business days means at 58 business days is when they actually look at it. I so know. it's very, very inefficient and very government bureaucracy. Typical. Exactly. And it's very unfortunate. Um, I've called them. I talked to a few very nice people. They said they put it in their, their priority queues, but it's just not, uh, not making its way through. So the plane's been sitting there grounded, waiting, waiting to fly. It's probably going to be the end of January before I actually see it in the air again, but. I'm looking forward. I want to come fly that thing. I definitely want to take you and Eldon and everyone else I can up flying in it. So. All right. Well, well. We'll, uh, we'll do that hopefully in another month or so once you get it. <laughs> yep, exactly. All right, well, let's uh, let's sign this one off here. That's probably a good place to wrap it up. Uh, that was the end of episode, I forget what number. Uh, I think episode 10. Episode 10. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. And uh, we'll talk to you on the next one. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.